Byer was a 24-year-old young woman who, along with her husband, were tourists visiting South Africa. They were guests staying at the Aloe Ridge Hotel and Nature Reserve, which is about 25 miles from Johannesburg. This particular reserve advertises that it gives its guests the ideal opportunity to game view with rhinos listed among the animals sighted at close range, along with hippos and cape buffaloes and giraffes. Unfortunately, one of the guests at the reserve got a little too close. Game park owner Alex Richter had reportedly told a group of visitors that it was safe to get out of the safari vehicle to take photos. And he even used some food to coax the rhinos closer. As the game park owner was snapping pictures of the tourists, he advised Chantel to stand just a little bit closer seconds before the attack. Photos taken at that time show Byer and her husband only feet away from two rhinoceroses. The paper said that just after the photo was snapped, the rhino attacked and its horn penetrated Ms. Byer's chest from behind, resulting in a collapsed lung and broken ribs. The Aloe Ridge Hotel and Nature Reserve, where the incident took place, declined to comment. Of course. Well, as I read that story, I thought this falls under the category of use discernment when given advice. You know, even alleged experts can give foolish advice at times. Well, we are in a series of messages working our way through the first letter of the Apostle John. John wrote this letter to the early Christians to encourage and to warn and to instruct. Our particular focus through this letter has been on the word and topic of fellowship. Fellowship, that English word that we get from the original language word koinonia, koinonia, which refers to sharing life together. As believers, we are called to share life or koinonia, first and foremost with our Lord and then with his children, those who call themselves Christians. Well, last week we finished up chapter 3, and John closed chapter 3 with this reminder from verse 24. He said, The one who keeps his commandments remains in him, and he in him. And we know this, that he remains in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. And so John reminds us that we can know that Christ lives with us because Christ gave his Holy Spirit to us. Jesus promised his disciples that once he had died and went and sat down at God's right hand in heaven, that he would send someone to, in his place to be a helper to his children. He even called him the helper. This helper, the Holy Spirit, is called a seal of our salvation. If anyone has the Holy Spirit, they are a part of God's kingdom. In the very First gospel sermon preached by the Apostle Peter. You can read that in Acts chapter 2. It's there that we find out that a person receives this promised helper, the Holy Spirit, when they are baptized into Christ. When we are born again, the Holy Spirit is sent by God to live in us and help us to live more holy lives. Now, we live in a world where there are myriads of people and philosophies and groups 
that purport to worship or represent or provide fellowship for God's people. Many claim to be spiritual or of the Holy Spirit. So how are we to know who is a part of God's family? How do we decide who to enter into fellowship with? Some people and groups are beckoning us. Move just a little closer. Join with us. It's okay, we're just like you. And so how do we decide which groups God is a part of or what the devil may be using to sidetrack or trap us. If we're not careful, we could get attacked. We could be gored, not by a rhinoceros, but by the evil one. And so we must be discerning in entering into fellowship. You see, true koinonia is so rare and so precious that we are called to be careful with whom we choose to share that precious fellowship with. And so fortunately, in today's text, John gives us what I'm calling three tests to help us to choose wisely. And so let's take a look at these tests. The first test we're calling the confession test. The confession test. Two boys were walking home from church after, after having heard a very strong sermon on the devil. And one said to the other, what do you think about all this Satan stuff? And the other boy replied, well, you know how Santa Claus turned out. It's probably just your dad. <laughs> oh, well, friends, the devil is no Santa Claus. He is very real. And he is very much invested in destroying our faith, sidetracking us from what is true, and looking for ways to get us to take our eyes off of Christ. And this is why John says in verse 1 of today's text, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Like the early Christians, we are faced with false teachings and false teachers on a regular basis. And it is our responsibility as Christians to test or to discern. That is the word used here, to discern. It's the same word that we get our word microscope from. Scopas, to look carefully into, to test whether these teachings on teachers are from God. That's our job. And so the first test that John gives us, we're calling the confession test. And that's because of what we find in verses two and three, where John says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and now it is already in the world. Well, you know, at the time that John wrote this letter, there was a crisis in the church. There were those who were leading people astray, away from what Jesus had taught clearly about himself. These teachers were denying that Jesus was God in the flesh, as he claimed to be. 
there was a, a certain brand of teaching at that time that argued that Jesus was just really a, a regular person who at the time of his baptism became inhabited by the Spirit of God, but then that God's Spirit left him before his crucifixion. They believed and they taught that for God to connect himself with the material world, with human beings and suffering, would somehow diminish the nature of God. And so that coming down to earth as a human being was beyond his station. Well, John's reply to this false teaching is clear, and it's definitive, and it is filled with conviction to abandon Jesus' claims of divinity, of being God, is to let go of the possibility of living the life that God has for us. The incarnation, that word literally means God in the flesh. The incarnation is the deep truth that John urges his followers to confess, to speak forth, and to keep at the very center of their faith and at the core of their lives. Anything else outside of that, John calls antichrist, against Christ and his teachings. Now, you live in the United States like I do, and we have neighbors living all around us with many different views about God and salvation and religion. There are Muslims and Hindus and atheists and agnostics and Catholics and Protestants at least, and many, many more. And what are we to do when we hold such a particular view of Jesus in this very diverse environment? How do we continue to confess such a view when it at times will put us at odds with other views held by the world around us? Well, Following John's lead here, I want to offer to you a counterintuitive suggestion. Rather than softening our view about the very distinctive claims of Jesus, rather than, rather than, oh, uh, giving up our deep-held beliefs and convincing ourselves to, to place Jesus to the side of our belief system so that we can seek out fellowship and good feelings with others, rather than doing those things, maybe we should consider more carefully what the deep, deep truth of Jesus really means. Maybe we should embrace it more deeply. I want to suggest that the more that we discover about Jesus, the more beautiful that truth of the incarnation, God in the flesh, becomes. Believing that God became a man isn't selfish. It's not an exclusive claim intended to, to put people off or to demean them. But it is actually a generous and loving claim that holds out the best possible hope for humanity and the world. Through Jesus, God makes the world right again. Apart from Jesus, nothing can be right if we were to do a brief overview of all the religions in the world, we would discover that there are three primary views of this material world that we live in. The first view is that the world is an illusion. This view holds that 
the goal of religious life or enlightenment or salvation has little or nothing to do with the material world. Rather, the, the goal is to disregard the physical realm altogether, getting in touch instead with the spiritual. And so for some, this means that the consequences of our physical actions are meaningless so that we're free to do whatever we want in the flesh. In the end, it doesn't really matter. Well, that's one view. A second view is that the material world is bad. This view holds that the goal of religious life is to withdraw from the world because there's no hope to be found out there. The physical world is on its way to destruction and to be entangled by the things of life in this world is to become tainted by its evil. But then there's a third way to view this material world. And it's the one that becomes John's view of Jesus. A Jesus who fully enters into a real physical existence. And this view holds that the material world is good. It was created to be a place where God's glory is put on display. The beauty and joy of rich fellowship that is possible indicate the goodness of the one who created it all. With salvation, with coming to know Christ, comes a deep, deep appreciation and affirmation and engagement with his creation, with the creator, and with those who confess Jesus. You see, this is his plan and his purpose, and it's the plan and purpose that Satan is seeking to destroy. And so, brothers and sisters, we are called to seek fellowship only with those who truly confess Jesus. We must be discerning and test not just our own confession, but the confession of others. That's the confession test. Well, there's a second test that John provides for us as we pursue fellowship with others. And that's the one I'm calling the overcoming test. The overcoming test. Perhaps you've heard of the Mariana Trench. It's located in the Western Pacific Ocean. It is the deepest oceanic trench in the world. The maximum known depth is over 36,000 feet. That's nearly seven miles deep. That's a pretty deep trench. If Mount Everest were put into that trench, its peak would still be underwater by more than a mile. Well, researchers have designed special submarines to descend deep into the Mariana Trench. The walls of these submarines are constructed with extremely thick steel plates to withstand the tremendous pressure placed upon them. But when they get down into that deep, deep trench, the pictures taken from these very heavily protected submarines reveal fish swimming down below the surface. Fish with scales no thicker than any other fish. How can this be? Well, the answer is simple. The pressure on the inside of those fish is equal to the pressure of the water around them, even at that very deep depth. You see, they were created to have a perfect balance. Well, you know, that's the beauty of Christianity. Our faith in Christ. 
Some Christians seek to build massive walls to insulate from the attacks of the enemy, only then to find themselves frustrated by isolation. The key, you see, is not to put up massive walls to protect yourself from the enemy, but instead to realize that the one inside you is greater than whatever pressure or force that can threaten to attack you. When we understand that he that is in us is greater, greater than my temptation or my problems or my traumas or my difficulties, greater than anything that can come against us. When we understand that, we can move through life freely, seeking true fellowship with the one who created us and with his children. Verse 4, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Them is the Antichrist, those that are speaking against Jesus. You have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. What a powerful promise for God's children to, to hold on to. Satan and his spirits use their great craftiness and power to try to trick and deceive God's children. But the indwelling Holy Spirit makes God's children powerful. That power is available to us, enabling us to overcome the attacks and the lies and the deception of the enemy. In fact, John says, it's already taken place. He says, you have overcome them. The construction of that word means that it started in the past and has a continuing, ongoing action in our life. We have already overcome them and continue to overcome them because greater is he who is in us than anything in the world. We are overcomers. We are tested and found to be more than conquerors. May we believe this truth. May we live this truth. And in doing so, that is when we will discover the fellowship with Christ and with his bride, the church, that he fully intends for us to experience. So we have the confession test and we have the overcoming test. And finally, John reminds us that we can seek out fellowship properly when we apply the doctrine test. The doctrine test. I read about a new, highly efficient system that's being used in San Francisco and New York City and several other large cities across the country. And it is a system that's designed to detect the presence of toxins in the city's water supply because toxins are a possible sign of a terrorist attack. And so these water supply boards and, and government agencies have found that the best tool for monitoring these kinds of threats are bluegills. Bluegills, those little fish that so many people catch on a lazy summer afternoon day. And so according to this article that I read, a number of bluegills are kept in a particular tank at the bottom of a city's water treatment plant because they're highly attuned to chemical imbalances in the environment around them. And so when a disturbance is present in the water, the, the fish, these little bluegills, react against it. 
And if the computerized system at the treatment plant detects even the, the slightest change in these bluegills' vital signs, it immediately sends out a, an alert to the water technicians. Well, Bill Lawler, the founder of the corporation that makes and sells these bluegill monitoring systems, said, nature has given us pretty much the most powerful and reliable early warning center out there. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? Well, you know, it's popular today, particularly in the American church. It's popular for people to say things like this. Oh, doctrine doesn't really matter. Maybe you've heard somebody say something like, I'm not into doctrine, I'm just into Jesus. But John here in this passage reminds us that doctrine, that word literally just means teaching, truth. Doctrine, teaching, truth, they matter. They matter deeply. And it is our job to monitor the truth, looking for disturbances, kind of like those little fish. Because there are a lot of toxins out there that can destroy our faith. Let's look at verses five and six of our text. They are from the world, John says. Therefore, they speak as from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. The one who knows God listens to us. The one who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And so John gives us the doctrine test. To live the deep life of true koinonia is to be rooted and grounded in deep truth. And deep truth has everything to, uh, to do with our understanding of who Jesus is. John concludes his discussion of testing by placing the false and true teachers in direct contrast. The Holy Spirit declared to John that those who truly know God know the word. Those who don't know God, they're not interested in listening to the word. John says that the anti-Christian teachers, he says, are not of us. Because you see, there's no middle ground. There is no neutral position concerning Jesus Christ. Since the false teachers are from the world, that world system, they speak out of worldly wisdom which is just what the world wants to hear. Maybe you've talked to someone and they say something like this. Well, I know what the Bible says, but I think, or it seems to me, I know what you're saying about God, but it, it seems to me. You see, when you hear those kinds of statements, you can rest assured that is not from God. God will never lead us contrary to his word. If the motives or the teaching or the instruction that anyone speaks contradicts scripture, we can know for sure it is not of God. John says that the world speaks. They speak. Uh, that, that word uh, means babbling or talking without real sense or meaning. And so John says, the world listens because it hears its own language. You know what that means? The devil tells people what they want to hear. He's their kind of preacher. 
there's a faction of modern Christianity that expects that we might be able to secure all the promises of Christ without living in obedience to his teachings. And that is false. That is not from Christ, and therefore it is antichrist. But on the other side, John says, true Christians, like John, are from God. They get their inspiration directly from him and are tuned in to Almighty God. These messages were written down and carefully preserved. And today, they make up what we call the New Testament. And so when John says, listen to us, he's talking about himself. He's talking about Peter and Luke and Matthew and the other early Christian writers that were supernaturally blessed to receive messages from God. And today we have those messages compiled in our Bible. And so those who know God hear his voice when his word is spoken to them. While the world listens to false teachers, the one who knows God listens only to his word. And folks, there are so many voices vying for our attention these days. Everyone believes something, and many seek to influence us with their ideas, their preferences, and yes, even their doctrines, though they may not call it that. And so more than ever, we need spiritual discernment. We need to be settled in the truth of God's word. We must know what we believe and why we believe it. You see, when we know truth, we won't be led astray with error. And that is when we can pursue fellowship with the right people at the right times for the right reasons. And so what do we do? What do we do with our friends and our neighbors that challenge our belief about who Jesus is? especially when we understand more fully the rescue that he provides, not just for us, but for all of humanity and for the world. Well, we must find ways to make him known more clearly. We must be able to describe more carefully and clearly why he has become so dear to us. What a great conversation to have with someone that doesn't know Jesus. Start simply by sharing from your heart what Jesus has done in your life. Nobody can argue against that. And when we describe more carefully and clearly why he has become so dear to us, then we can talk about our love and the goodness that we've gained in our life. And we can give testimony through our own lives and our words about who he is and what he's done. We learn from Christ who it is that he wants us to be. And then we genuinely strive to live it out. We let him lead us to become a part of the solution of this most broken world that we live in. And we do that when we faithfully testify that Jesus is the Christ, God in the flesh, our greatest hope and the greatest hope for all the world. There is no other hope. And so let's not end up dangling from the horn of a rhino on our spiritual journey. Stay close to Jesus. Choose carefully whose spiritual advice you listen to. Remember, 
the great power living in you that proves that you have already overcome. And then measure everything by God's word, not by man's ideas. May the Lord bless us on this journey. May he give us confidence and may he comfort us during difficult times. Let's pray together.